Dotnet Rocks episode 679 with guests Jeff Smith and Howard Van Royen. Recorded live Tuesday, June 28th, 2011. This episode is brought to you by Telerik and by Franklin's.net, training developers to work smarter and now offering video training on Silverlight 4 with Billy Hollis and SharePoint 2010 with Sahil Malik. Order online now at franklins.net. And now here are Carl and Richard. Thank you very much. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. Carl and Richard here for your delight for the next hour or so. Your .NET delight. Hey, Richard, how are you, man? I am well, my friend. How are you? I'm just great. Yeah. It's just a good day here. Suns are shining and... Um, the boats are out on the river, you know. People are outside on the sidewalks drinking Guinnesses and coffees and having a good time. It's a little, it's a nice day in New London. And what can you say about summertime? It's hard to resist. Hard to resist. In fact, I think I'm due to come hang out at your place. Uh, very soon. Yeah. Very soon. We're going to have some fun. Stay tuned for that. Yeah. We'll, we'll publicize it. I promise. Hey, let's jump right into a Better Know Framework. Awesome. <laughs> Better Know Framework, of course, I shine a little light each show on a little dark corner of the .NET Framework or give away a tip or show you uh, something that's popular on CodePlex or something like that. Yeah, I've been liking your CodePlex ones. But today, however... What do you got? I got a Silverlight 5 tip. Ooh. Yeah, Silverlight 5, of course, in beta right now. Um, Silverlight 5 has support for for multiple click input on the left and right mouse button. And so uh, if you handle an event like button, you know, your your mouse left button down mm-hmm. event handler, your mouse button event args parameter is has a property called click count. And that could be one or two or three. You could have a triple click, for example. Oh, I see. Isn't that weird? Yeah, that's cool. But it's kind of cool. That's how you do it. Well, you just think about if you're really going to use a mouse well, and I know it's not hip anymore because we're going all newy, yeah. right? You want to do gestures and things, but there's more folks who really use mice. And I'm thinking of my wife, right? Who, who is, uh, in the clothing industry and they really use mice for digitization in a deep way. Yeah. And just clicking combinations and so forth that are much more complex than what we typically do. The mouse is not dead, folks. There are. Well, the keyboard is not dead. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> What's up with people? The keyboard is dead, man. Yeah. All right. Not to worry. Not to worry at all. So what are, what are people saying about us or talking to us about, Richard? I grabbed a, this is a bit of a long comment, but I really wanted to read it because you'll, I know you'll appreciate it. And it's from show 666. Yeah, and that was just another show. Just another show. But although it was a fun one. We did it with Steve Smith about performance tuning in ASP.net. I think we really geeked out. And uh, I have a comment here from uh, Jason from Fargo. And he said, uh, enjoyed the performance war stories. I wanted to clarify a bit on the N-Hibernate story. I think someone at the beginner level of N-Hibernate or any ORM tool, the principles discussed apply generally, would not necessarily come away from that story with a clear picture of what was actually going on. And that was the story that um, Steve told about N-Hibernate really consuming a ton of resources. I was confused when the problem was first described as creating sessions too frequently. Generally, one session per web request is the way to go there, but it in doing it more often than that, it's not ideal. It isn't that expensive to the level of the problems that Steve was describing. 
When he moved into the 40 to 80 databases hit per page range, and it seemed to be a problem, possibly the very common N plus one problem that Allende discusses a lot on his blog, and a problem that's easy to hit on when you start using ORM tools because of lazy loading. That's got nothing to do with N-Hibernate. But even this number of database hits per page doesn't seem like enough to actually bring IIS down like Steve was seeing. I was scratching my head until we heard that the Fluent and Hibernate Configuration Build Session Factory was using 23% of the resources. Holy cow, that's a method that should be called only once when the application starts up. It's a method that we use reflection to analyze all of your classes to find those that get stored in the database and build up the object relational mapping plan. Knowing that, it's easier to see why doing that several times per web request would cause problems. And you see what was happening there. They were literally reinitializing the entire N-Hibernate stack, its connection to data, with every uh, database request in the single page. That'd be bad. That's disaster. Uh, and, and obviously an easy thing to fix when you say, okay, don't do that. Well, everything's uh, easy when you have all the answers. Once you, yeah, it's all about the diagnostics in the end. And, and Jason ends with, thanks again for the performance war stories and for putting on a great show so regularly. And uh, Jason, thank you. We have a great time doing it. And performance war stories, some of our favorite shows. We will do more. In fact, yep. Steve and I have been talking about doing a conference session talking back and forth about war stories because people seem to appreciate idea. them. And uh, we're sending a mug to to Fargo, North Dakota, where I have been and probably would like to visit again someday. And if you've got questions, concerns, ideas for shows, things you want to talk about in relation to our show, you can leave a comment on any show at .netrocks.com or send us an email, .netrocks at franklins.net. And don't you know Fargo is a great place? <laughs> they got a lot of cows there. <laughs> I wasn't going to go there. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, we have a great show for you guys today because our guests are Jeff Smith and Howard Van Royen. Jeff has five years of experience, you know, as of this recording, uh, in professional web development and has worked with ASP.NET MVC since its inception. He is currently development lead on Sharp Architecture. That's with a pound sign, S pound ARP Architecture. Um, he currently is an engineer for Digital Evolution Group in Overland Park, Kansas. Howard Van Royen is the co-founder of Engine, that's E-N-D-J-I-N, a collaboration of like-minded people who are imbued with an infectious enthusiasm for solving business problems through the smart application of technology. He is a technologist who has a mentality of work smart, not hard. He has a passion for reducing project delivery friction by the smart application of agile methods and engineering excellence. Howard spent a decade working as a consultant for one of Europe's top digital agencies for some of UK's leading companies. He was part of the development team in the UK's first Scrum project. Howard loves software and his desire for engineering excellence led him to become a JetBrains.net Academy member. He's the inventor of Scrum for Team System creator of StyleCop for ReSharper, Templify, and part of the development teams for Sharp Architecture. Welcome, Howard and Jeff. Hello. Thanks for having us. Thanks for being here. Well, where do we start? Um, I guess we should start with Sharp Architecture, <laughs> Sharp Architecture, or, or Sharp with the pound sign. It, there isn't a particular interesting way to say that, is there? No, it's, it's Sharp Architecture. Okay. Uh, just with a pound sign. Um, yeah, so Sharp is pretty much just a solid 
Architectural Foundation for Quickly Building Maintainable Web Applications in the ASP.NET MVC framework. Um, everything right now is based off of InHibernate. Um, we're trying to move away from InHibernate and give you the ability to shoot in whatever persistence layer you want there. If you wanted to use a document-based database like you know RavenDB or MongoDB, um, we've really moved away from um, really needing um, in Hibernate, you know, the, for in Hibernate to be required to use sharp architecture. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the goals of the project, and I guess our mission statement, is to decrease the amount of code it takes to write an application. And by doing this, um, you increase the quality of the product and the maintainability. Yeah. Um, we, we really try to take away the plumbing and try to let you focus on writing what your application is about and not have to focus on the infrastructure. So specifically for building web applications, I mean, if it's the MVC successor. Sure, web applications. We're, we're a presentation layer is kind of open-ended, and so we know people who do GUI applications and who do console applications and uh, who you know might use OpenRasta instead of MVC. But I think um, our kind of standard project is just a MVC project. Okay, I, and I thought MVC already had this nailed. What are you guys adding to the equation that makes life easier? Well, I think what's really interesting about this is kind of if you go back to the history of uh, Sharp Architecture. So kind of all started off back in about 2006. So the chap who actually created the project and, um, and you know, coined, coined the name Sharp Architecture with a hash um, was um, Billy McCafferty. And uh, he, um, he created this, this article, which is basically N-Hibernate Best Practices, which was on uh, CoProject back in 2006. And so if you go back to kind of pre-2008, uh, kind of things like MVC and Hibernate ORMs were pretty rare within the .NET ecosystem. And so actually trying to find any information about kind of N-Hibernate or MVC patterns was actually quite hard to come by. So he wrote this, he, he I think, did, delivered a couple of projects and distilled all of his best practices down to this one article. Um, wow. and, uh, and so when... So he decided when MVC came about that he was going to try and encapsulate that article in a project that people could download rather than just read the text. And so he came up with Sharp Architecture in about March, April of 2008. So this was at a time when there weren't really many articles about MVC. There weren't really many articles about um, N-Hibernate. There weren't really any articles about um, Windsor. Um, and what this did is actually gave you a nice up-and-running application that would allow you to kind of get started and kind of debug through, step through, look through the tests to see how it all worked rather than just reading a really dry article. So it was really guidance. Yeah, it was More actually than, guidance. Yeah. And, uh, and what kind of happened, so back in 2008, you know, essentially all, all your kind of alpha um, developers were kind of, you know, thrashing around trying to find MVC projects that they could, they could, they could work on. Right. And uh, this was kind of the main one, really. Um, and uh, I know it helped. It helped me and my teams at the time. Um, and then uh, we kind of started contributing back. So uh, you know, it started off. It started off. You know, just as just after the ASP.NBC one CTP was released, um, I think he actually uh, uh, launched the first version um, uh, at the same time as the MVC preview three came out. Um, and then basically went through kind of six months of uh, of you know putting out new betas, getting feedback from the community mm. and taking help from those kind of alphas who were all sat on the field trying to trying to write, you know, you know, next generation at the time kind of web applications with MVC and then Hibernate and feeding back all of that that kind of um, good practice into this framework that everyone else could consume. And this was kind of, you know, at the time when Fluent and Hibernate didn't exist um, uh, and uh, things like entity framework were, were you know, pretty nascent. 
Mm. So it was pretty, you know, it's quite cutting edge for the time when it started out. And it's just matured from that point onwards. Which you know, sort of begs the question, I mean, I've got nothing against that hybridate. It's obviously been successful in its space, but there's now more ORMs in the space. Does it make sense to, to have options for different ORMs? Yeah, so I think, you know, uh, Jeff can correct me, but I think kind of when I kind of got involved, I think in kind of like early 2009, when we were doing our first kind of MVC project, and uh, and so, again, it was kind of the default taking uh, and hibernate and building a platform on top of that. Um, but then kind of in 2010, when I started playing around with you know, Entity Framework and Mongo and, and, and Raven, I kind of still wanted all the real goodness that kind of Sharp Architecture brought to the mix. Um, but I also wanted to have a kind of swappable persistence layer so I could kind of rapidly prototype things. Um, so that's, that was kind of one of the main drivers for, um, for, for V2 was around essentially still having all the kind of best practice um, kind of set up in there and allowing people to kind of, you know, get going very quickly, but uh, but allowing them a little bit more flexibility. So still very strongly opinionated, but with flexibility built in. Yeah, there's always an interesting dynamic there between preaching the one right way that doesn't fit with anybody and being so flexible that nobody can understand it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's very, very pragmatic. And that's kind of one of the things that's been quite interesting is just the advice from the people in the forums has always kind of been about pragmatism. So kind of, uh, you know, get, getting stuff up and running sensibly. Um, and also, you know, some of the things that are kind of now baked into the framework around like um, MVC scaffolding with stuff that kind of we came up with about, you know, two, three years ago for doing kind of um, code generation to create all the different layers in the application based on your, your domains and entities. Um, so, uh, so at, you know, what, what's been really quite interesting in kind of the version two release is essentially being able to take out a lot of the, the kind of bespoke code that we built and allow, and allow, you know, essentially us to onboard all of the new kind of actual kind of authorized um, Microsoft clean code that's been that's been shipped. What what can you tell us about domain driven design in terms of um, in terms of sharp architecture? How do you embrace the principles? And and encourage best practices. Well, really, um, our standard project, our project template that we use, that we use to deploy Sharp Architecture, is nearly an exact copy of Eric Evans. You know what he considers uh, the best or one of the best ways of you know deploying an interior architecture um, with his you know domain layer, with his task layer, with his infrastructure layer, and his presentation layer. Um, so we, I mean, that's literally, if you go to the first couple pages, and Howard can correct me if I'm wrong, of Eric Evans' book, and he'll, he'll have that, you know, that kind of interior architecture. And that's, you can go to the Sharp Project and say that's exactly what he, you know, recommended. And um, beyond that, like, um, we use the vocabulary of domain-driven design throughout the project. Um, there's some debate whether or not, you know, you're adding any value of, if, you do, if you're doing that, you know, or are you just using the words, are you actually doing what he says? And, you know, I think that's, an, that's a good debate. But, um, for example, we call our repositories repositories. Um, we call our entity objects entity objects. Um, you know, we call our infrastructure layer infrastructure layer. And we really try to keep in that vocabulary of domain-driven design um, to help the end developer actually, you know, use that uh, vocabulary and use those domain-driven design concepts in their application. And I think if you start if you start using that vocabulary from the very beginning before you you know actually get a project large enough to really use domain driven design, I think you're in a better place uh, once the project is complex enough to where you're really deep diving into that. And that that's I think really the key is that you're really talking about 
large complex applications that benefit from this kind of um from this kind of architecture, don't you think? Yeah, I mean I've used Sharp in very small applications. I think Howard said that he uses it to, you know, rapidly prototype things and you right. know that's what I use it, you know, same thing here. Um but yeah, no, I've used Sharp in multi year, very large projects, and I think Howard's probably done the same and we have many other users who use it on very large projects. Um so Sharp architecture really scales very well. It, it stays maintainable no matter how large the project gets. Yeah, and that's quite a claim. Well, <laughs> I guess not as large as <laughs> I mean, there's limits for projects that are really large. I, Sharp might break down, but just in my personal experience, you know, I've done a couple 24 month projects that have gotten quite large, and I've, you know, it's been maintainable, and we've had people come on the team and come off the team and who are able to jump right in and add features. Um, and so, you know, that really, that having that loosely coupled architecture is really, really beneficial. I mean, there's a reason why domain driven design is so popular. Right. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our good friends at Telerik. Hey, can you ever have too many free tools to complement your development skills? I didn't think so. So our friends at Telerik are giving you now more than 30 free products for application development, automated testing, agile project management, and content management. And we're talking free-free, not a trial, not a demo, but free, complete products supported by a community of over 440,000 developers at Telerik Forums. From free ASP.NET AJAX, ASP.NET MVC, and Silverlight controls, to the free ORM solution and automated testing framework, to free agile management tools and content management systems, all of these and more are available to you for immediate download at Telerik.com slash free stuff. Most of the free products can be used for commercial purposes and give you access to supplemental support resources such as documentation and forms. Go to Telerik.com slash free stuff now and take full advantage of the available free of charge products. And don't forget to thank them for supporting .NET Rocks. How does the testing uh, frameworks come into this equation? Um, originally, I think we just supported InUnit, and Howard might uh, know more about this, but uh, InUnit was kind of the go-to you know, test library. Um, we've begun supporting MSpecs, and I would actually like MSpecs to be the default. I mean, you can use whatever you want. There's nothing stopping you from using whatever you want, but if we're going to show like what a best practice Sharp Architecture project looks like, I'd rather use MSpecs. Uh, I, I enjoy that a bit more. Um, but we do have a few helper classes, so, you know, repository test helper and, you know, different um, helper classes to help you get set up in the testing. It's not, it's not that much. Um, it's not something you could spend an afternoon trying to get together yourself if you had to. Um, but we really do try to, you know, encourage uh, test-driven design. Yeah, from from the testing perspective, from, from from my point of view, when yeah, when when we started getting involved in uh, in uh, in sharp architecture, it was kind of generic kind of end unit um, uh, TDE tests. Um, a lot of them were actually integration tests, and kind of the project I was running, I had um, a team of about um, ten ten developers, and we were working on an e-commerce platform uh, that we delivered in ten two-week iterations. And uh, one of the things that I was involved with in my company at the time was essentially trying to roll out some uh, uh, some kind of quite standard engineering practices across the development teams. And, and I'd spent years trying to persuade people to do test-driven development, but always kind of hit friction. And uh, I was very fortunate enough to persuade uh, the, the, powers, 
that be that um, we should send a couple of the guys on my project to um, JP Badoo's um, NothingBot.net course. I know he's been on the show a number of times in the past. And so they came back completely supercharged um, with um, you know, BDD and, um, and some of his kind of architectural patterns and practices. And those are things that kind of got fed into the framework. So we were actually using, um, I think, a custom cut of his BDD framework, um, and that just that just got so much more traction. I think it's just it's just the way developers think about specifications, think about um, kind of language, and then essentially any kind of situation you're in, the kind of the different permutations just start to flow out just because of the use of uh, use of the English language and your kind of own cognitive processing abilities. Um, and so that's kind of fed back into um, into V2 that we've gone down now that kind of M spec has become kind of the, the kind of de facto um, BDD unit testing framework. I mean, there are other BDD frameworks like Spec, Flow, etc. that uh, that are very good for doing integration uh, style testing. Um, but M spec seems to have kind of caught a bit of traction. It's now integrated in things like Team City. So uh, and and we like using it. So it's kind of our opinionated kind of view of we like doing stuff with this. It makes sense to us. It makes um, the whole the whole kind of BDD development cycle quite slick. So why not try and evangelize it out to other people and also give them some uh, demos of actually how to use this, how to get started, what a, what a, what a good BDD spec actually looks like. I think it might be useful here to sort of go back and revisit some of Eric Evans' domain-driven design uh, ideas because. I imagine that that those those may be really new to a lot of our listeners and um perhaps very very critically important to understanding the value of sharp architecture. Can we sort of d- dive into that a little bit and explain what uh what the what uh, his main ideas are all about? Um sure, I'm trying to think of how I would phrase this. Um um I mean, beyond the actual, I mean, beyond the actual solution structure, I mean, I, I don't really know. I mean, it, it uses the vocabulary of domain-driven design, but I don't really know how Sharp would um, encourage the, I mean, like, I don't really know how Sharp would guide you beyond just using the vocabulary and keeping the project structure. Um, I mean, I would hate for someone to think they're doing domain-driven design just because they're using the words. Um, well, for, me, but for example, you, you mentioned there was about four or five different layers that, that he um, mentioned. So let's, maybe we should talk about those. Oh, sure, sure. So, um, um, Sharp Architecture utilizes uh, the domain layer where the business logic lives. Um, this is to be kept clean, you know, of any persistence or any kind of application logic. Um, so, ideally, you would just have your business logic there. It's not a full-blown DSL, I wouldn't say, at all. Um, but you would keep just your business logic in the domain layer. Um, of course, how do you talk to your domain layer with, you know, the different, you know, how does that actually get to the end user? Um, the answer would be the application services layer, which we now call task layer. And that's simply because um, application services was kind of a loaded term. When you think of services, you can think of service-oriented architecture, Windows, okay. you know, service host or whatever. One of the reasons that changed to task was actually the feedback from the guys who came back from JP's course was that essentially um, he, you know, in, in the architecture he was promoting, his MVC architecture, essentially he based everything around tasks and kind of actually drew that back from kind of agile tasks that were on, were on your sprint backlog. So it was, it was talking about things um, in terms of um, things to be done, you know, an orchestration layer that you could basically use to, um, to orchestrate the different tasks 
of your system, basically. So it's kind of, again, we, we always thought this application services layer was so kind of generic in its, its terming, it, it wouldn't really um, convey the concepts of what was supposed to go on in there. And that's kind of why, you know, uh, Jess mentioned it a couple of times about naming. We think naming is so important that your presentation layer is a presentation layer, whether that is WebForm, Spark, Razor, a WinForm client, a console app, or a WCF, um, a WCF application. That is actually your presentation layer. Your infrastructure layer is all of your infrastructure plumbing, whether that's kind of your database connections, connecting to external services, um, you know, any kind of integration point. But that is actually your infrastructure and repositories are just that. They are repositories of data, whether that's connecting to an Hibernate or to a document database or right. to a, a text file. Um, and I think what's quite interesting is if you start going more into the enterprise space, I mean, every you know, it's very common for people to just see, you know, like they've written an Hibernate uh, or, or entity framework type web application where, you know, the, um, the base, database context, the context is, um, is kind of proliferated around um, the application. But in some other bit bigger applications, you may have data coming from multiple sources. So in the um, e-commerce platform that we built, we had data coming from from um, uh, SQL Server via and Hibernate. We also had um, data coming from Solar, which is an open source Java search engine. And mm -hmm. so you want to actually you know, pull pull this data out of the different repositories. You know, at some point. Push them, you know, combine them together and then put them through the stack up to the presentation layer where they're just view models that can be bound to. Um, but you've abstracted all the complexity of your, uh, of your application to something at the front end, which is just essentially a, a data binding operation. Okay. Uh, so, so you have this, um, did you say it was an application services layer, uh, Jeff? That that's what uh, that's what Eric Evans calls it, and as Howard said, we call it the task layer. The task it, it serves layer. the exact same function. Yeah. Um, but it's just it's just renamed because uh, that's really what you do with the task layer. You give it tasks to do, um, and of course you have the infrastructure layer, which you touched upon, mm -hmm. um, which is you know the plumbing of the application where you wire persistence up or anything else you need wired up. Any of your infrastructure lives in the infrastructure layer. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, last is the presentation layer, which is where your MVC project will actually live, yeah. you know, with the views and the controllers. And the, um, we have enhanced query objects in 2.0, which are basically view model builders. Um, but this is, you know, as he said, these are where these things live. <laughs> the names are fairly, you know, self explanatory, but sure. we're, we're keeping things in their own layers and keeping them together. And um, it really makes for a much, much more maintainable application. Okay. Uh, we have a, a couple of questions from, from Twitter. Uh, this one from Tim Houlihan. Uh, your project uses OO, object-oriented practices and patterns, common on other platforms. Why has it taken projects like Sharp to bring that to .NET? Ooh, that's, that's kind of bitter. <laughs> <laughs> it is, but I think it's, it's a very salient point. I think, you know... In other words, uh, object-oriented practices such as what we're talking about here. Not necessarily about objects. Yeah, well, absolutely. I mean, you look at MVC. I mean, it's taken to what two thousand and eight for, right. for for us to move that pattern, and it was in Java from day one. Right. You look at Ruby. It was it's yeah Ruby on Rails is MVC. That's it's very, so it's taken a long time for us to to go from the kind of standard you know Windows abstractions of, of WinForm and WebForm yeah. to actually you know a standard pattern that is used on multiple different stacks. Um, that is that is a well-known pattern out there in other technologies. Um, I think you know, having done you know done you know a decade of web form applications, kind of having having an alternative framework, and there were alternative frameworks before, like um, Monorail. 
um, but actually being able to get, you know, and also, you know, the Microsoft ecosystem is quite um, immature in its adoption of kind of open source. So many, many customers and clients and, and companies out there still are a bit reticent about taking on open source because they're not quite sure what the licensing model is or what the implication of it is, how it gets supported going forward. And so, you know, what is very common in other ecosystems, i.e. You know, PHP and Ruby and, and, and Java, is, is just slowly starting to kind of percolate into our ecosystem. Um, and, uh, you know, this is all underpinned by the fact that the .NET platform is absolutely awesome. You know, it, it rocks. Um, but... Um, but some of the patterns that, that we've adopted over the years haven't been on parity with kind of other platforms. Uh, so things like Sharp Architecture are, are you know, people trying to create you know, mature um, patterns that allow them to build you know, scalable, um, uh, well-performing um, web applications that are testable um, and allow you to, you know, to manage multiple features and you know, multiple developers and actually not build up a massive amount of technical debt. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I also think that Microsoft in general hasn't worried much about, they throw the kitchen sink at you and, and relatively little guidance. There's, there's, there's so many ways to go wrong and relatively few to go right. Right. Yeah. I mean, this is, this is one of the things that kind of has been a bugbear of mine for years is about, you know, when, whenever with a team, you try and build a pit of quality you know, that they can fall into rather than giving them a mountain that they have to climb over to get things done. And what, what, what has been really nice with, you know, the migration to MVC is that, you know, things are testable, that things are, um, uh, much easier to architect, that, you know, building an abstraction on a, on a, on, on HTTP is, is a much thinner abstraction now. And if you look at, you know, other frameworks like OpenRaster, um, then that, that abstraction is even, even thinner. Um, and what that what that does is actually bring out the sheer power of um, of kind of what HTTP can do, right? Yeah, it seems like it's over layered. We we lay we lay so much stuff on to hide things and eventually get lost in the layers. Also, I think you know Microsoft from the get go has been driven by what uh, you know what developers what what mainstream business developers want when and uh, not necessarily what they need. Which you know they they essentially want to get more people writing Windows applications. That's what drove Visual Basic and what drove that whole paradigm of development. But I think realistically, what people really want are applications that they can build easily, that they can test easily, and they can maintain over over a long period of time without having you know the fact we're in a, a kind of a, a, an ecosystem that means that we have to basically after four years you know rewrite an application from scratch because yeah. we can't maintain it and evolve it um um you know efficiently then we end up just you know we end up just with a really really um you know uneconomical you know uh sector that we're in because we can't yep. we can't do things for the for the long run we're constantly we build something on a technology stack and then we we, we learn our mistakes and then we decide to jump to a new technology stack where we can't apply any of the learnings from the last technology stack and we make the same mistakes all over again rather than evolving your architecture over a longer period of time yeah, preaching the choir, my friend. <laughs> it's been a it's been a long trail of tears. But I'm also thinking about challenging problems in this using this architecture, like introducing NoSQL into an operating application. You know, I think that would be that's not an easy move to make. But I'm presuming this architecture is going to help me there. You want to talk through something like that? I think the question of document databases is quite is quite interesting because you mm-hmm. look at different domains within the different industries. 
And you look at what people are trying to do with data. You look at, say, the insurance and finance industries. And these are industries that, that essentially at their, their core concepts are talking about you know, documents. They're talking about you know, um, object graphs of data that they, that they basically pass around from, from layer to layer and system to system. Things have to be versionable. Um, and you know, for the last you know, umpteen years, um, we've always tried to denormalize that into a, into a set of um, relational tables. And now you have a technology where you can basically take that, that kind of um, that object model and just persist it directly to a store. And I think that's one of the things that has been quite um, interesting about um, Sharp Architecture, especially kind of um, the, the kind of branches that we have for doing kind of prototyping where, where it just sits on top of, say, uh, MongoDB and uses Norm to do, um, to do the, um, the, the, the data connection. Right. That essentially, you can, just, you can write your object model in C Sharp and then you can just say persist, and it, it truly is kind of like persistence ignorance that you can say, I just want this object graph to be stored somewhere, and I want to retrieve it um, by a different ID um, at, at, at a, a different point in time. And uh, and that's that's as complex as your kind of your data story gets, and it is it's so kind of liberating after you've done kind of ORM work, especially kind of within within kind of and hibernate either mapping file space or the kind of entity framework. Um, space or Fluent and Hibernate, um, all of the pain you have to do to set up all these conventions. I mean, that's one of the, the things that, that was so good about um, Sharp Architecture when, when um, we started using it a few years ago was that um, the kind of whole notion of convention over configuration wasn't really a mainstream concept, but it was baked right. into this framework. Mm. So as long as we were you know, building features, adding database tables, um, and they followed the convention, we would have to do no more configuration work. It was just kind of all there. And um, and I think that's that's a bit of an eye opener for for developers who haven't gone down that path before. Um, when it feels to me like this is the architecture that would highlight that complexity, we keep it saved. You know, you've got your ORM layer dealing with persistence and all the complexity in that, and then you slide in a MongoDB, and it's suddenly so much lighter. Where more oh, yeah. traditional architectures tend to spread that stuff around, and the effort to make that switch is so high, you probably wouldn't even get there. Um, yeah, I would say that was correct, especially with the 2.0 release. I mean, we, we've really abstracted in Hibernate out of there. Um, it, it would be very, very simple to throw in MongoDB and then have none of your other layers really aware um, that MongoDB is the persistence layer. It's kept very, very simple. Um, I mean, there was, there, you're going to have to be aware of it at some point. Like, I don't think you're going to be completely persistence ignorant um, just as far as your query, queries go and how you would structure uh, things like that. But um, keeping it, you know, keeping it loosely coupled and having the other layers not aware of the persistence is just such a huge benefit that you can throw in MongoDB and not really care, or you could run MongoDB next to a uh, SQL, you know, SQL instance. I don't know why you'd want to do that, <laughs> but you, that's certainly that's certainly very possible. At Franklin's Net right now, you can get a DVD with over 11 hours of Billy Hollis on Silverlight 4 or 14 hours of Sahil Malik on SharePoint 2010, each for only $6.95. Order online at www.franklins.net. Are you looking to change jobs? Infusion Development has offices in New York City, Toronto, London, Dubai, and Poland. Infusion has hired a whole handful of happy.net rocks listeners. Contact me for an introduction at carl at franklins.net. Guys, jump a little back here. Someone who's considering getting started with Sharp Architecture, is this really a greenfield product, or can I take an existing app that's perhaps struggling and start applying the architectural principles to it? Hmm. I tried to do that. Uh, I mean, I, I could be wrong on that. 
Uh, I tried to use it on a brownfield project, and what I ended up doing was completely rewriting it um, right. as a greenfield project. Um, mm. I could have done it wrong, and I'd be interested to know if someone else did it <laughs> right. But I think a lot of that had to deal with the fact that the legacy project was poorly written in the first place, yeah. and so there was no fixing it. Like I, I think you could pretty much have to refactor at that point. Um, and mostly I've used Sharp Architecture on greenfield projects, and I think a lot of other people, I think that's what a lot of people do use Sharp Architecture for. Now, you can't integrate with third-party data sources very easily, so if you do have a legacy application you can't touch but has an API, um, yeah, Sharp can deal with that very, very easily. And I'm working on an application right now that has a third-party data source that I must talk to, and that's completely hidden away from me. I basically have my own little API within Sharp Architecture that I make calls to this uh, legacy application, and I don't have to worry about the plumbing. And is this very much a data-centric starting point? Go attach to your data source and work from there? Yeah, yeah, no, very much so, yes. Hey, we should talk about StyleCop a little bit. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we got a, a comment from Twitter, or a question from Twitter, uh, from Scott Marlowe. For Howard, what's new with StyleCop for ReSharper? Plans to update for ReSharper 6? And tell him, great job, too. Excellent. Thank you very much. Um, so have you talked about StyleCop before on .NET Rocks? Oh, we uh, may have in passing, but I don't think we ever got into it. So it's it's a it's a fantastic little tool. I mean, it, it's like Marmite. You either love it or hate it. And um, so, <laughs> like Marmite. <laughs> it's uh, so uh, so. Probably about um, eight years ago, I was doing a project inside Microsoft, and um, I was managing a team of contractors, and we were working on this this project, and. Um, I kind of was struggling with the fact that there was so much variability in the different coding standards of, of the team. Um, and uh, and I think I fired out an email into the mailing list saying, you know, is there a tool that I can use to basically try and, you know, FX Cop had just been released. It's like, you know, is there is there a tool that, out there that basically will allow us to kind of standardize our coding standards? Because you end up just spending so much of your time arguing about kind of grammar and style and um, and unfortunately, kind of, you know, coding standards are very personal to people. It's kind of, it's like criticizing someone's handwriting, essentially, criticizing you know, a fundamental part of their personality, how they code. Um, and, you know, it's just one of those kind of topics that just inspires religious debates. And I got an email back that one of the guys at Microsoft had, um, had uh, uh, built a tool that basically could run against the source code and highlight uh, a load of violations against uh, a set of uh, a set of rules that they'd uh, they produced internally. So they'd uh, you know argue back and forth amongst you know the actual people who built the uh, the uh, the uh, you know C sharp um, language about what were the best what were the best ways to to code you know what were kind of known issues and bugs that could be alleviated by having this kind of coding standard. And uh, the tool was fantastic, and we used it, and essentially, you know, it, it fixed the problem. Everyone's everyone's code um, looked exactly the same. You couldn't really tell who who wrote a function or a method or a class, which was absolutely wonderful, because the last thing you, you want is, it's kind of like being at university. The reason um, lecturers want your kind of essays to be typed is because they don't want to spend their time deciphering your handwriting. They just want to read uh, what you've written. Um, and then uh, that project finished, and I went outside of the walls of Microsoft and then felt kind of bereft because this was an internal tool. And then lo and behold, a couple of years uh, later, um, the uh, uh, Jason Aller, the, the inventor of StyleCop, um, got permission to, to, uh, to release it uh, into, the, into the big wide world. And uh, it was a massive success. I think it's had something like 100,000 downloads. Um, it's, it's built up quite a nice community around it. They also released an SDK that allows you to write your own rules and extend it. And at that point, I kind of said, well, what I really want is I want, um, I want it to be 
I, I want an experience inside Visual Studio that's akin to um, writing a document in Word. It will give me you know, green squiggles when when I kind of veer away from the uh, the uh, the kind of coding standard because essentially how you run it is a Visual Studio add-in, and essentially you have to run it manually against your source code every time. It's quite repetitive and quite boring. And I kind of really want it to run as you type. So I start poking around with um, with kind of the Visual Studio guts to work out how I could write a plugin and ended up finding some articles about Resharper and Resharper's open API. And uh, so my first prototype basically used the, um, the highlighting subsystem in Resharper. And essentially, we just had a little subsystem that would, um, that would run StyleCop um, kind of as you typed and it would scan the current document. And then er any errors it would find, it would translate them to highlights and basically write un uh, yeah, un squiggles underneath. And that was very nice because it basically showed you as, as code you were typing um, where, where your kind of coding standard violations were. And then I kind of thought, well, it would be much nicer if I could just kind of apply a quick fix to fix it. So then, then we started going down the route of actually creating little, little um, quick fixes that would go and you know, essentially reformat your code to make it align with StyleCop. So that's kind of where StyleCop for a Sharp was born. Um, and it's been very popular. I think we've had something like 60,000 downloads. I think we've um, supported Resharpa from 4.5 up to, to 5.1, and work is currently going on um, to, uh, to version 6. But what's been even more interesting um, for Microsoft, and it, there, there hasn't really been a lot of buzz about this. When Microsoft does open source projects, you know, the first one was Wix, um, and, uh, and now they've actually open sourced um, uh, uh, StarCop, but they've also just handed over the project to the community to manage. So it, it, it's been really interesting that a lot of the a lot of the people who wanted kind of bug fixes now can actually apply. And so um, uh, Andy Reeves, who uh, who has kind of taken on the project, has managed to foster an amazing community around him, and has actually kind of breathed a new breath of life into into that product. And he came because uh, he was one of the contributors on Starcup for Sharpa. Said, "Shall we merge the two projects?" So now Starcup for Sharpa, which was a separate product, is now integrated into Sharpa. Into into the main StarCop project. Mm. Um, so now you only have one download. It's automatically there. It's an option, and it's kind of your default experience inside Visual Studio. Uh, so that's kind of the StarCop story. Uh, the biggest question we always get because it was uh, StarCop basically would would have its own release cycle, and Resharper would have its own release cycle. We always got kind of caught in between that we'd have to support two. Um, but now, um, but now uh, StarCop Resharper is part of StarCop. We can now um, change the releases. Um, and match essentially the Resharpa kind of um, uh, uh, release cycle. And one of the nicest changes we did in the last one was when they open sourced StarCop, we actually managed to go in and, and create a new provider to make everything in memory because before every uh, StarCop worked off of um, actually reading the uh, source code file. So essentially to get the real-time highlighting working, we had to essentially shadow copy your, your current code file um, and save it so that it could be scanned. And uh, Andy wrote a particularly good kind of in-memory provider, which meant the performance was, was just massively improved. Um, and hopefully everyone's experience of it now is pretty, pretty much akin to Word, which is what we, uh, we, uh, we started out to do. Very interesting stuff and, and fascinating to have it tied to your uh, productivity acceleration tool as well. Uh, any other key tools you uh, you put into every instance of Studio before you get to work? Well, one of the interesting ones is Templify, which is um, it's something that came. It's, it's kind of some, a tool that I've wanted for for years and years and years. And then um, when we were um, thinking about the the Sharp Architecture version two roadmap, 
one of the problems we had was essentially uh, maintaining all the T4 templates and working out how we how we would release um, release the actual Sharp architecture template because I think in, in the previous version we had essentially Visual Studio project templates um, and they they're quite you know hard to automate, hard to build, um, and are quite error prone. And so what I've always wanted is to be able to create essentially a kind of a best practice solution and then be able to right click on it and say, right, tokenize this and turn this into, um, into um, a package that I can basically reuse. Um, and it also comes back to this point around um, essentially where, where does your development process start? And, and, and for me, it hasn't always started in Visual Studio. It always starts in Explorer where I go to like see projects and then create a new folder and then, um, you know, uh, it's kind of what your perception of a, of a project is. Are you creating a, a lightweight project, which is just a, a Visual Studio project, or are you creating a solution that has a kind of a, a, a best practice branching structure so that you can actually have multiple branches if you're in something like TFS or Subversion? Um, and so for me, the solution always starts inside Explorer. So I actually wanted a tool that sat outside of Visual Studio. And that's where Templify is born. Essentially, you can create your you can create your standard um, Sharp architecture project. And you can right click on uh, on the folder and say Templify this folder, and a little WPF UI um, shoots up that allows you to essentially add some tokens that you can that you can replace, and then it basically um, clones it clones the the folder system, and then it will um, tokenize it, and then it will basically zip it up and put it in a repository on your local machine, which means you can go to another folder, right-click and say, Templify here. Another dialog pops up. You can basically select the, the template that is in your local repository, and then you can type in a new name for your project, say, like, the first part of your namespace, and it will just basically unpack and then re-tokenize that solution. So it gives you everything. It will give you, the, you know, say, the Sharp Architecture project, a, a you know, custom build project that's got some MS build targets in there that will build your application, run your tests, and run your code coverage. Um, it does all of, all of that. So it actually packages up a whole solution rather than just a project. This uh, feels like the fix to cut-and-paste programming. <laughs> well, it, yeah, maybe clipboard inheritance. Um, yeah, that whole you know you're exactly the way you describe it. I'm getting re- I pull all these bits from all these other places to start assembling the the stuff I've already written into the new app. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, a, a lot a lot of kind of these kind of engineering practices, kind of ideas, come from uh, the fact that you know I was responsible for a number of years of working out how to make all of our consultants productive. So we wanted. You know, we wanted our own automated build and deployment framework that would allow would allow consultants to go on a client's site and within hour two of day one, they would have everything set up and they could start delivering value to the client and actually, you know, building features rather than, you know, squabbling over what build they should use, what testing framework they should use. You know, that kind of stuff is all, is all pretty known and, and solvable. And so how do you actually make teams more productive? And I think a lot of this, a lot of this tooling is around trying to make people, you know, productive more often one thing we haven't talked about is is this a free tool uh what templify and stock for sharper uh, uh, yeah it's, it's they're, they're all open source and um, sharp architecture it, as well yeah, oh, yeah absolutely yeah. it's um what what another thing that's, that's quite interesting about it is um you know, I, I i don't think many people peek inside an open source project and the, the kind of level of commitment that it requires and if you if you kind of look at this project that's been going for you know three four years and the number of people that have been involved, um, it really shows a massive amount of dedication. Um, which which generally you know I, I think it'd be quite nice to have you know a, a bit more a bit more kind of celebration around some of the, the some of the people who just pour lots of their lives into into this like 
Billy um, uh, put in a huge, huge, you know, basically kind of a year going solo of kind of building the framework himself, and then essentially um, people like Carl Bailey and and um, and Alex. Uh, Alec Whittington kind of came on board and started contributing patches and then essentially you know we, we've all got day jobs to do and op- open source is, is the thing that we'd love to be doing if someone could pay for it uh, you know pay us for it but we've all got to pay our own mortgages and uh, and so what's been interesting is watching the continuous cycle of people coming in as contributors and then stepping up and taking the dev lead role and then passing on to the next generation as we go kind of in yearly cycles so we've had essentially three leads now in, in Billy and Alec and, and now in Jeff and there have been numerous kind of contributors who have generally got on board because they've been using something like Sharp Architecture and they've either found that a feature is missing or they have fixed a bug and contributed it and then have kind of been pulled in and helping out other people who are on the same journey. Um, and then they become more and more involved and then they end up you know, becoming a, a core contributor. Um, and then kind of in Alex's case, being handed the reins and then him pushing it forward for a year and then basically handing over the reins to Jeffrey, who came on you know, to do a couple of bug fixes and do some documentation for us. Um, and now he's leading the team and pushing it forward. And so you have, again, like kind of three iterations of, of this framework with three different, slight different points of view, and then a whole slew of people um, kind of underneath supporting it. Um, and yeah. I think there are, there are so many kind of uh, open source frameworks out there that have got just maybe one person pushing it and supporting it. And I right. think this is one of my first experiences of actually having a, a dedicated team of people um, actually pushing it forward. Because I think for about six months, we, we, we did a Skype call every Sunday to catch up on what we were doing and, and what we were contributing. Um, and that kind of takes a lot of commitment when you've got kind of like six people across um, about five, you know, five time zones. Sure does. Um, just that kind of organization is, uh, is, 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 is rare in any project, let alone an open source one that people are volunteering on. Well, and, and I have to agree with you. Most open source projects don't survive the loss of the founder. Yeah. The guy who starts it is generally the heart and soul of it, and, and handing that off and actually having it successful after that is pretty rare. So so kudos to everybody involved. And uh, if you're going to use it, you know, give back uh, in any way that you can. Guys, any last-minute uh, things you want to say before we, before we call it a show? No, no. I have nothing else. Let me. Thanks for having us. Jeff Howard, thank you very much, and uh, congratulations on your on your uh, tools and your success. And thank you. Thank you very much. All right, and we'll see you next time on Dot Redbox. Dotnet Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a